What defines success? The judgment call is really important. And you always have to think about both the risks of acting and the risks of not acting. What happens when you get knocked down? I assume that the people criticizing me have something to say. So I try to overcome pretty quickly the initial sting and try to see are they right. What makes some people radiate? If you're going to do well in this world, you've got to first understand that the same news can be interpreted differently. So you've got to keep an open mind to different interpretation. This is Radiate. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radiate, the show where we interview some of the world's most successful people to find out how they work their way to the top. This week, we have a very distinguished guest, Mohammed El Arian. He's currently the chief economic advisor at Allianz, chairs President Obama's Global Development Council. He's a Bloomberg View columnist, and he's also author of the latest New York Times bestseller, The Only Game in Town, Central Banks, Instability, and Avoiding the Next Collapse. Mohammed has had such an illustrious career, I can't fit it all in five minutes. He was born in New York, raised in Egypt. Mohammed spent nearly 15 years at the International Monetary Fund before working for Solomon Smith Barney, Harvard, and PIMCO, where he rose to become the CEO of the world's biggest bond fund. As we learned very quickly in this interview, his career continued to thrive even in the face of tragedy, which you'll hear about in a little bit. He's a brilliant mind. I think you're going to gain a lot of valuable insight from his experience. So here we go with Mohammed Alarian. Enjoy. So Mohammed, great to have you on Radiate. Wonderful to be with you. So you know we've talked to a lot of people about um, about their careers and how they got started and what made them so successful. I mean, you clearly. I mean, you've become one of the preeminent voices on the global economy, on you know, on central banks. Uh, people look at you and they, and they look you to guide them on where, you know, where this world is going. So did you always know that this is what you wanted to do, that you were gonna get to this point? So first of all, it's very kind of you to say that. I don't think that's the case in terms of how people view me, but thank you for saying it. I've been incredibly lucky. My major career decisions were actually imposed on me and I didn't take them. So as an example, um, I was doing my PhD and I was convinced that I was gonna stay in academia. That's mm. what I was gonna do. And then my father suddenly passed away. And How old were you? I was in 21, my mother had never worked. I had a seven-year-old sister. Mm. And suddenly it became really important to earn some proper money. So at the time, the only people who really employed PhD economists and paid them with international organizations. Hmm. So I went to the IMF basically because the career that I had chosen was no longer the right career given the family circumstances. And it ended up being a great decision because at the IMF, as someone in your early to mid 20s, you get exposed to policymakers. You actually sit in the room where major policy decisions are taken and you get to see many different countries and you start real, you started to see how the sausage is made. And that for me was an amazing eye opener. Um, what was the biggest thing you learned during that period, that early period? That you've got to make decisions with a lot of uncertainty. That the judgment call is really important. And you always have to think about both the risks of acting and the risks of not acting. 
And you have to ask yourself, not the question that all of us love asking ourselves. We, always, we all love saying, asking ourselves, what's going to go well for me? If you're a policymaker, you've got to ask the question, what sort of mistake can I end up making? Not because I want to make a mistake, but if I end up making a mistake, what is, what is it going to look like and can I afford to make it? And that's a very different way to think. And that for me was a complete eye-opener to be in the room as a junior economist hmm. and see major policy. Now remember, this is the 80s. This is in the midst of the Latin American crisis. This is in the midst of Mexico. I worked on Mexico. I worked on, on Eastern Europe. So it was a real eye-opener and I learned a ton from that experience. So if you hadn't, uh, if that hadn't been sort of forced upon you, what do you think you would have done instead? I think I would have had an academic career where I would have written about the theory of policymaking. I wouldn't have had a feel for how hard this is. And I wouldn't have realized that the most important intersection is economics, one, policy, two, and markets, three. And that the real world happens at the intersection of these three things, because as an academic, I would have stayed in the economic circle, mm. and I would not have been exposed to these other two circles. So tell me, Mohammed, how you went from IMF, and I mean, you trace your career for me. I mean, you know, I think of you obviously at PIMCO, but before that, you were at Harvard, uh, and you know, you've traveled the world. I mean, how did you get to all of these places? So the big shift happened. The second big shift in my career was when I was turning forty. And I was very comfortable at the IMF. And the advantage of these organizations is that you can trace out your career pretty well by the time you've been there for 15 years, which I had. Was there a set path? There's a, there was a set path. At that point, I knew that I had one more step to go from deputy director to director. And that was very comforting. But I also realized I had never been in the private sector. And the opportunity came up to join what was then Solomon Brothers in London on the emerging market team. And I took leave from the IMF for two years because I wanted to see what it was like in the private sector. And nothing prepared me for that shift. It was a major shift. Um, not only was Solomon going through its own changes, so I started, I was interviewed by Solomon Brothers. Mm -hmm. I worked at Solomon Smith Barney. And by th that time I had left, it was part of City. And all that happened very quickly. Not only was there a major change in the platform in which I was engaged, but I also was surrounded by people who think completely differently. My bosses went from being senior people to being junior traders, mm -hmm. mid-20s junior traders. And They I, were your bosses. They were my bosses. They were the profit center. I, as an economic research person, was a cost center. <laughs> and it was quite a change. And it was a very, very humbling experience. And I basically started all over again, learning a language that didn't, wasn't familiar to me and trying to translate my economic insights and policy insights into market-related issues. So it was a complete change, and again, it was a very humbling change, but one that ultimately served me well. But why did you want to do it? Because I wanted to see the private sector. I thought that by, by 40, my human capital was eroding. If I didn't take a risk then with my career, I would have never taken a risk. And I had always felt that I didn't quite understand the private sector. I'll give you an example. When the Latin American crisis erupted, I was sent as part of an IMF team to talk to money managers in New York. And this was a very unusual thing for the IMF to go talk to the markets. And we're sitting with a very famous money manager. And I asked a very innocent question. What's the first thing you did when you heard that Mexico could default? <laughs> 
and he said to me, I sold Chile. For me as an economist, that made no sense whatsoever. Chile was a very well-managed economy. It navigated the crisis extremely well. It was nothing like Mexico or like Venezuela or like Argentina. So I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. That was the economist part of me speaking. And then he came back. He said, well, you don't understand how markets work. I said, well, please help me understand. He says, when people pick up the newspaper tomorrow and they read that Mexico is about to default, they're going to sell their Latin American funds. Chile is part of the Latin American funds. So Chile is going to be sold even though it doesn't have an issue. So as an investment manager, it makes more sense for me to get ahead of that trend and buy it back when it's much cheaper. And that was the first time I realized that contagion wasn't irrational. Hmm. Right? Before that, I thought contagion was irrational. These markets don't know what they're doing. No, they know very well what they're doing because they're, be they're reacting to how humans behave. So if you read on the front page that Mexico is having a problem, of course you're going to sell your Latin American fund. So th that transition from Mohammed the economist to Mohammed the investor, how long did that transition take? So first it went from Mohammed the economist to Mohammed the analyst. Okay. And then along came PIMCO, which was a wonderful, wonderful experience in my life. And at PIMCO, they helped me make the next transition, which is to not just analyze to take risk and take risk in a way that's measured on a daily basis. And I was surrounded by the brightest minds in the business. You know, Bill Gross had put together and PIMCO still has an incredible set of talented people. And they taught me a lot about how to translate analysis into investment decision. And most importantly, they taught me to respect market technicals to understand that it's not enough to have the right analysis, but you also have to respect markets the way markets behave. Right, and sometimes not rationally, not by any means. When you say risk, you know, taking risk, what does that mean to you? I mean, how, how did you learn to be more of a risk taker? And were you one before, Mohammed? So, you know, I, I, taking risk is both through what you do and what you don't do. So this has been written a lot about, when I first joined PIMCO, I was on the emerging market team. And I looked at the index, and the index had 22% Argentina. And it was pretty clear to us, not just at PIMCO, but I think generally, people understood that Argentina was heading towards a very ugly place, and that the probability of default was high. I would sit on panels, and we'd all be asked, what do you feel about Argentina? And we'd all have a very negative outlook. We'd all be asked, how are you positioned? We'd all say underweight. Mm -hmm. And then the question would become, how underweight? And people say, oh, I'm holding five percentage points less. I'm holding 17% as opposed to 22%. I'm really underweight. And they would come to PIMCO, and we would say, We're not, we don't have any. And they would all look at us and say, that's too risky. And we say to no, not have any exposure. To not have any because you, you're, you're, you're taking such a big tracking error. Right? And we explained that on the contrary, okay, having 17% of something that you think may end up in a bad place is wrong. Right? As the numbers showed, it's really interesting. In 2001, when Argentina defaulted, that year, 
Argentine bonds lost you 60% wow. of, of your value. Had you owned Argentina as part of an index, you were down 2 to 5%. Had you simply voided Argentina and owned other parts of the index, you were up 20%. <laughs> so you know what I learned is 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 taking risk has an absolute side to it, has a relative side to it, and you've got to balance the two very very carefully. It's almost like if you're going to take a position, then actually put both feet in and take the position, right? Correct. I mean and, that's kind of how I how I learned from I mean how I'm interpreting what you're saying. And if you don't have reason to believe that you know more than the people around you. Don't take the position. I remember Bill Gross said early on, if you don't if you don't know who the fish at the table is when you're investing, then you're a fish. So be careful. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's really important to ask yourself, what is my edge? Right. And if you haven't got an edge, then sit it out. Right. That's wise advice. Now, do you put any of that to use in your own life, like in your own career, that kind of thinking? So you know, I apply a few things in my own career, and and it's probably not a good thing in my own life. But it's not a good thing. Um, I think a lot about scenario analyses. Okay, so in my mind, in my mind, I continuously think: if I do this, this is likely to happen. But if I do that, that is likely to happen. And that's not good. Um, it's not good because sometimes you just have to go with instinct and 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 don't overanalyze situations. So you know, I don't think that's a particularly um, good thing to do sometimes. Do you do that when you're buying a house or something like that? Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, and it, 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 when you're buying a house, when when you're trying to decide which airline to take, I mean, it can get ridiculous. <laughs> it can get really ridiculous um, on that. So I, I try to control that. But but I've learned to try and look at different things. You know, when I was 13, we were living in Paris, and my father encouraged me to read the newspapers. And we used to get four different newspapers every morning. And I, as a rebellious teenager, said, not only am I not interested in reading the newspapers, but I don't understand why we waste our money and buy four newspapers every day. All we need is you one. You said that to him. Yeah, all we need is one newspaper. News is news. And we only need one newspaper. And he said something to me that has stayed with me the rest of my life. And he said, that's wrong. Because the four newspapers you see there some were from the right spec the right wing spectrum of the political of the political spectrum, some were the left wing spectrum. They give you different interpretations of what's going on. And if you're gonna do well in this world, you've got to first understand that the same news can be interpreted differently. So you've got to keep an open mind to different interpretation. And you've got to have an ears and listen to how people think. Because ultimately, how you think can be as important as what you think. Mm. And there was such an important insight um, that he, you know, he gave me at the, at the age of 13 that has stayed with me. I still read a whole range of publications from the right to the left of the political spectrum. Um, you know, when someone has a different view of mine than mine, I will read why. I'll take it very seriously. I will assume that they're seeing something that I'm not seeing as opposed to dismiss it immediately as I know better. And and that was, you know, I trace it back to that 13, you know, what happened to me as a 13-year-old. And since then, I, you know, I've been reading a lot. And you try to keep an open mind, it sounds like, to a lot of things. Uh, you mentioned your dad. Your dad was a diplomat, right? He was first an academic and then a lawyer. 
okay. in the public sector, and then he was pulled into the um, into diplomacy. So as a kid, um, I was born in New York, where he was initially. Then went back to Egypt. Then we started moving every time he moved. Mm-hmm. Till I got to, to the age of fourteen, I said, "I cannot do this anymore. I can't change languages. I can't change friends. I can't change school curriculums. It's getting too hard." What was so hard about it? You just you were. It was a hard time. You were having a hard time making friends, making friends, and doing well in school. Or? It was. You know, the older you get at school, the harder it is to make friends. And then to change languages completely, mm. and then to change a curriculum, and and you know, university entrance was coming up. So he said, "What do you want to do?" I said, "I'd like to go to boarding school." He said, "Where?" I said, "The U.S." We are living in France at the time. He said, "Too far, too expensive. What's your second choice?" And without knowing what I was saying, I said, "England." And he said, "Let me get this right. You want to go to an English boarding school?" He said, yes. I said, yes. He said, this is your decision. He says, do you know what you're getting into? (laughs) He said, exactly. And then he said, do you own it completely? And I should, at that point, if I had been a bit smarter, I would have realized that he was warning me that I better look into what I'm saying. (laughs) But for me, if I couldn't go to the States. That was the second best thing. That was the second best. Why? Because I I, I study in English. (laughs) And I didn't realize that he was actually telling me something that I should have known. So, you know. Um, it was quite an experience. But did you, in the, in the end, were you glad you did it? Yeah, in the end. But my first three months were the hardest three months of my life. How? Why? You know, I was the only foreigner there. Um, I hadn't grown up with the people there. Boarding school tends to be full of cliques. I was all on my own. Uh, I was did playing you feel a, isolated? I felt like an, a total outsider. Hmm. I, and the great equalizer was sports. I learned rugby and and I made it into the team and this was the the big the great equalizer. But the first few weeks and months were hard and I knew that I couldn't complain because this was my decision. As your dad said he said you own it? I, I own it. And, and at those you know during those days and my 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 daughter doesn't believe it during those days even making a phone call once a week an international phone call once a week was a big deal. Yeah. Right? So it's not as if I I was texting and <laughs> sharing with them everything on was social going. media That's right. on facebook by the way are you on facebook now um i am i have a facebook account that basically picks up my my tweets but i'm not an active facebook i think i made a huge advance by being on twitter yes okay and that's about that's about it for now and you're quite popular on twitter now do you you know you mentioned about being an outsider i'm always curious when i talk to people who are very successful a lot of successful people feel like they are outsiders i mean do you still feel that way yeah to a certain extent because i've had such a diverse background lived in many different countries um started out in one career ended up in another career so yes, a little bit um, as an outsider. Um, it's not as extreme as it was at boarding school. Um, but you know what? It's an advantage because you question a lot more, mm. a lot more, because you haven't been raised in um, a certain conventional wisdom. So you question a lot more. What would you say is one of your biggest career mistakes, Mohammed? So the first big mistake I made was um, in my university interview. And that was also very important in terms of being formative. I was going to be interviewed at Cambridge. And my economic teacher at school 
said, read this book, which has just come, came, come out, read it. I don't care how you do it, but you've got to talk about it in your interview. And they're going to be so impressed that you've read this book. So I read it and I prepared this perfect monologue. And off I went to the interview. And I knew the interview was going to be 45 minutes. And 40 minutes into the interview, I had not mentioned the book. <laughs> and I was starting to panic internally because this interview could end any, in any minute. And we were talking about something completely different. And I said, oh, and this reminds me of the book. So I tried to pivot the conversation. Two people were interviewing me. One who had been doing all the talking and the second one who had been taking notes. And out of the corner of my eyes, I saw the second one put down his notes and smile. And he asked me, well, tell me about this book. And then I went into a perfect monologue about the book. And my confidence was increasing. As I, and I thought, this is great. I'm going to really impress him. And then he said, okay, that's fine. So let me ask you one question. And then he asked me a question that destroyed the whole thesis of the book. And suddenly, everything that I had said had fallen apart. Then he got up, and this was his, his room, he got up to his bookshelf, pulled out an off-print, which was the review of the book, and gave it to me and said, you know what, just because you read it in a book, does it make it correct? Hmm. You have to be more critical in how you think about things. I came out of that interview devastated, absolutely devastated. As it turned out, um, I did get in, so I must have done something well in the exams that followed. But for me, that was a real lesson from a mistake because all I did is I simply repeated like a parrot what I had read without thinking about it. And so it taught you the importance of critical thinking? Of critical thinking, of questioning how someone comes to a conclusion, right? And not just accepting it simply because it's printed on a, on a book. And in, in those times, you know, there something on a book was, was regarded as... The Bible. The Bible, yeah, the gospel. Yeah. Uh, when you look back on your time at PIMCO, do you have any regrets? You know, it was a wonderful time. I worked with amazingly talented people. Um, Bill surrounds himself with talent and he has an ability to interact. And I was very lucky in the sense that I learned a tremendous amount. And it, it, you know, I will always look back on it as a wonderful time in my life. And I have lots and lots of friends um, at PIMCO and they're great. You still do. Yeah, I do. It's, it's you know, it's... it's do you a, miss it? What I miss is the intellectual stimulation. I miss being in that investment committee with people that are a ton smarter than me, who feel confident to question each other, who know that it's not about ego, it's about getting to the right answer for your clients. And that was four times a week. We would be in that room for up to three hours, four times a week. So I miss- And you love that. I absolutely adore that. I adore that. I, and I love you know, bringing in um, the very specialists that PIMCO ha have that are really qualified to talk about an issue and debating with them. So I, I miss that enormously. Um, but it was the right time in my life to try and get a better balance between you know, 
personal things and work things because it, you know, I was traveling so much of my time and it was time for a change. Did you have a fear though that once you left PIMCO that it would be hard to keep you know, the level of, of power is the wrong word, but the stature, right? Were you fearful in a way that it would be hard to transition out of that? So I never, that never occurred to me. What, what I was afraid of is I would become lazy. Right. You? Yes, me. I, that I'll become. <laughs> so what I did is, I did something that Pimco taught me, which let structure do the heavy lifting. Structure your life in such a way that you end up doing what you want to do. So simple things like committing to write a book, like writing for Bloomberg View two to three times a week, writing for the Financial Times twice a month. All these things, were they were there, they were structured, and they kept me engaged. And I ended up learning a lot. And when you have to write something, when you know that, that, that many people that you respect are going to look at it, it really is a good disciplining tool. Mm. So you knew that you wanted to structure, you wanted to have some commitments that would keep you on your toes either every day or every week, something regular. Correct. Otherwise, I'd be watching sports all day long. <laughs> go Jets. <laughs> Do you ever want to go back to a full-time job? It may happen at one point. Right now, I'm really happy with the portfolio approach. I feel very privileged that I can do it. It gives you a lot of flexibility. Um, I, I keep on looking at different things. I even got involved with a startup, and that's a completely different world. I've never been in the startup world. Right. So seeing how they think and how this is payoff, right? This is payoff, yes. which is you know led by an incredible CEO who's very visionary, and he wants to improve the delivery of financial services to people who should be getting better service but are not. But who don't, who don't have the credit essentially, right? Oh, oh, yeah, or the small businesses, and through the combination of understanding how they behave, the behavioral science part and technology, um, payoff is actually doing quite a bit to help these people. So you like the portfolio approach. What has been the hardest thing about your transition? So I think the hardest, what, the hardest thing has been what we've talked about, which is not being surrounded okay. by people who are a lot smarter than me, a lot smarter than me. Um, you know, that is, you, you realize how privileged people at PIMCO are to be in that environment. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, we were talking about some of your, your, you know, your career mistakes. What about your biggest fear, Mohammed, as you were climbing up the ladder? What was always your biggest fear? My biggest I know you hate being in the television studio and on camera. So I hate, do it I, well, though. <laughs> I think my biggest fear in, in my career was between July and November 2002. Um, Brazil was going to pieces. I had been traveling to Brazil every two to three months, and I had felt that the market was overreacting. So in July, we decided to start buying Brazilian assets. But between July and November, these assets continued to go down. And I would visit Brazil, and I'd come back and I say, the market's overreacting. Um, but this was a really hard time. Mm. And I was lucky to be working at a place that takes a long-term view, 
Now, as it turned out, it was one of the best bets that you could have put on. And come December, January, it turned around, and it turned around in a major way. And but then, you had to have some conviction there. Yeah, that, and, and, and it's really lonely. When you're the contrarian and you have a position on that's losing money, it's a really lonely place to be. Mm. And that's really hard. It's hard to stick your neck out, right? Yeah, and keep it out there because it would have been really easy to collapse a position. Right. Right. But again, the the fundamentals and everything else were pointing to there's a ton of value there. And we had done a lot of research. We had spent a ton of time in Brazil. And it was clear to us that there was a considerable upside. What, of course, you can't determine is when does market sentiment change? Yeah. And it took much longer than we had anticipated. <laughs> but eventually, you were on the right side of the trade. Yeah, eventually, it was a great trade for our clients. Yes. But the, those 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 few months were, were pretty hard. You lost some weight? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's a good thing that I had my dog that I could speak to, talk to. <laughs> so, Mohammed, we just have a few minutes. I want to just change gears a little bit. Because one of the things about this, um, about this podcast for our listeners is for people to also get some sort of concrete advice um, or get concrete advice from um, from our guests. So I want to get more into the management side because people think of you as the economist, but you also, you know, you're a manager as well and you were CEO of PIMCO. Um, so I'm going to just rapid fire to you a few questions. What's been the best way for you to find and hire talent? I think the best way is to recognize that teams are more important than individuals. So pursue individuals with a view to recognizing that you want to make one plus one equal more than two. So cognitive, cognitive diversity is really important. You don't want to hire the same type of person over and over again. It's the easiest thing to do because we have our comfort zone. But if you look at a very successful fund, look at Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. They hire incredibly diverse people. So recognize that you're not hiring the same person over and over again, but you are constituting a team. And just like a football team, your quarterback is going to look very different from your tackle. Right. And don't make the mistake of, of just hiring either quarterbacks or just hiring tackles. How do you handle criticism? It's hard. Um, I assume that the people criticizing me have something to say. So I try to overcome pretty quickly the initial sting and try to see are they right. Normally, I have to come back to it. Um, these days, if you're on Twitter, you you know you have to have a pretty thick skin because um, there's lots of criticism. But I always start with the assumption that they're trying to tell me something and that I should try and figure out what they're telling me and then decide whether it's valid or not. How do you handle the touchy subject of firing someone? It's not something that I've enjoyed doing, but it's something that I've had to do. In the vast majority of cases, the person was better off because there was a fit issue and they were underperforming and they knew it. And there's nothing worse than when you're underperforming and you, and you know it. Um, so it's one of these very difficult decisions, but in the vast majority of cases, it was the right thing for the person as well as the right thing for the company. When is it okay to yell in the office and have you ever done it? I've done it very seldomly because I'm not a yelling sort of person. Um, but sometimes it's needed. I think the best managers are those who can strategically yell. 
What does that mean? Because I know a lot of people are curious about that. So a strategic yell is when you're yelling to wake someone up. Is you know this is what I'm about to tell you is not just important, but it's exceptional, and I'm going to change my behavior in order for you to understand how important this is. Um, so the strategic yelling is something that great managers do. Absolutely, right? I mean, people think that you know showing anger in the office is actually the wrong thing, but I mean, sometimes you do have to do that. I like the way you say that, strategic yelling. And just on the final note, how do you handle conflict with your colleagues? So I tend to bring them into a room and have them talk to each other. And but what about when you have a conflict with someone? So when I have with some conflict with someone, first I, t- I tend to shy away from it. But then <laughs> I tend to try and figure out why it is that there's that, this conflict. And what I've realized from, from resolving conflicts that others have had with each other is in a lot of the cases, it's actually something small that has become really big. Mm. Right? And people have read all sorts of things into certain behaviors that the other person is very surprised to hear. That that's it was festering for so long. It was festering, and then somehow they start making causal associations. Right. Right. And often just talking about it. Um, now, it's hard to do this yourself. Right. Sometimes you need a third person to come in and, 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 and create the safe environment to have that discussion. Um, so so I've, I've, I've normally been the person who has created the safe environment for other people mm-hmm. to talk to each other about why it is they're having conflict. Next week on Radiate, David Stern, the legendary former NBA commissioner, talks about what he's learned on and off the court, plus the toughest moment he had as the commish. Thanks for joining us. I'm Betty Lou. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment to give me your thoughts and opinions on our survey at radiateinc.com feedback. Please also like and review us on iTunes and find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. See you next week on Radiate.